welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. Welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I am so excited today to have on Dr. Darnisa Amante Jackson. Uh, I was, I think, pleasantly surprised when I spoke with uh, Tague that he said, oh, there's somebody you've got to meet. She's been so helpful for us. She's awesome. I think you guys would have a great conversation. If you can get on her calendar, and I was like, say the word, let me find a way. So I'm just so happy to have you on today um, because I, well, one, just, I look, just getting to know your story, how you got started, I think it's hugely valuable. And of course, the work that you're doing right now is kind of amazing. Oh, thank you so much. And really, really excited to be here as well. Okay. So let me give you a little backstory on Dr. Darnisa. Um, Dr. Darnisa Armante is an educational and racial equity strategist. Um, she's deeply committed to the study of culture, innovation, and adult development. Since earning her master's degree in anthropology from Brandeis University and her doctorate from Harvard's Educational Leadership Doctorate, she has honed her knowledge of culture and adult development to transform organizational and school cultures on issues of equity, change management, and redesign. Uh, she currently serves as the president and co-founder of the Disruptive Equity Education Project and as a system-level leadership lecturer at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. I'm so happy to have you on today. I'm excited to be here as well. I know you've got a great set of questions prepared, and I'm happy to answer them. Yeah, so let's dive right into your upbringing and what experiences have shaped you over, over I'd say, the beginning, the early stages of our lives, right? Well, definitely, I think I've been doing equity from the womb, Garland. It's been a long journey, and my story starts off in Brooklyn, New York. So I'm originally from Brooklyn. Shout out to anyone here from Brooklyn. That's how you know where we're from, because we have to tell you. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s. I grew up in the middle of the crack epidemic, and so I saw a lot of things as a child that I don't think many, many folks who haven't had to live through that era saw. And there was this constant question about how could a community be bettered? How could we truly get the opportunities needed? And what were going to be some of those access points, right? The things that had to be different in order to ensure that we weren't going to have future generations experiencing the same things, either of my generation or my parents' generation. And, you know, my story, especially for Deep, starts off in my experiences in school. Um, as a Black child at that point, I had a lot of bias. A lot of people sort of doubted my skills, doubted my intelligence, and really truly believed demography was destiny. And I wanted to find a way to be graceful, but to kind of call culture like that out. And I think that want as a child manifested itself into the multiple businesses that I lead that are impacting that same type of culture and organizations, a place where people feel seen, 
They feel relatively safe and feel like they can achieve anything that's possible. And, you know, sort of the sky is the limit and the limit's the sky. Um, and it doesn't matter about what your identity is or who and how you are. And it's been really cool to see that trajectory over my lifetime and how it's manifested in businesses. Yeah. So when you talk about deep and I guess the even just creation of it, you know, looking at not only your background in anthropology, but also, you know, education, uh, how did you come up with, you know, creating this framework? Yeah, so there are a couple of different frameworks that we use, but the biggest one is the diversity, belonging, inclusion, equity spectrum, D-B-I-E. And um, for me, it was really important to think about what does DEI require that we often don't talk about? And the anthropologist in me had the answer. DEI is nothing more than long-term cultural change that requires difficult conversations the most difficult of conversations in order for us to achieve a greater good. And I wanted people to be able to feel like they could say things that needed to be said to support the learning of people who are really not informed about people's differences while still trying to achieve impact over time. And the DBIE spectrum was born out out of all of that. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you to define terms because I think people just smash that acronym together, DEI, DEI, and may not necessarily know what each word stands for. And then when you add the belonging to it, what does that exactly mean? Exactly. So let's start at the very, very top. When you hear DEI, DEI is not all one type of work. And the reason we call it DEI is because it's in alphabetical order. The work does not go diversity, equity, inclusion. The work goes diversity, inclusion, equity. Nobody wants to do dye work, though. That's why we (laughs) inserted the B. So diversity is the start point. It's not the end goal. And a lot of people don't like diversity. They think it's hokey. They think it doesn't really lead to change. What diversity is, it's creating a culture of curiosity. So it's actually creating in function, in priority, and time, a space for people to talk about themselves in ways that have nothing to do with work, right? Being able to talk about your identity and where you came from and where you grew up and what your favorite foods are, being able to talk about things like race and class and sex, it is not just race. And what diversity does is it prepares people to do the thing we often don't talk about, which is the B, belonging. Belonging is the sweet spot. It's the sweet spot for organizations, and in my opinion, it's the sweet spot for world change. Belonging is the moment that you realize you can't just invite people to a party and expect them to feel welcome. There are things that are happening that people may not see, and if people don't have a chance to tell you how they are implicitly being impacted. We never truly achieve the change we want. So belonging is all about things like affinity groups and creating space for people to feel seen. So if you think about diversity as everybody bring a dish to the potluck, belonging is tell me why this dish matters to you and then tell me how you've been treated when you bring this dish. What it does is it builds empathy. It allows us to 
reconnect to humanity again. And for the first time, people realize that oppression is real. Marginalization is real. And that your neighbor could look just like you and have a completely different life from you. And that's what belonging is. We often don't do that. We usually jump straight from curiosity to inclusion. So in this case, inclusion is all about whose voices are informing institutional practices and whose voices are informing leadership. We often recruit the same perspectives and we expect change to happen. And inclusion says, if you don't bring marginalized, so people who are not normally heard, people who don't normally have access to power, to tables, we will recreate oppression in a new name. But it'll be the same thing because the same perspectives are informing it. So for the listeners, you hear it, without belonging, inclusion is tokenizing. It assumes that people feel comfortable telling you their lived truths, and a lot of times they don't. And this is how you could recruit new people into the room and they say nothing. They don't know if you want them there. They feel like you want them in look and not in voice. Correct. It's basic. It's yeah, it's basically you are you want me here so that I can show up as a a different person that's in the room. But you don't really want to hear all the things that I have to say that are going to be contradictory and potentially even um, opposing uh, to what, you know, our current status quo or kind of what, you know, what we've, what we've been doing this whole time. And it takes a while to be able to even look at your own bias and your own blind spots, because that requires you to have to start to question, oh, well, if this person's seeing things differently, what am I not seeing? Exactly. And that's why the belonging is so important. And that's why I'm happy that Deep has had the opportunity to be inserting that B across this country, because what happens is we do diversity and then we want to recruit staff of color. And we do that, staff of color or staff of difference, right? This isn't always about race. And then we do that in absence of building the structures that makes those marginalized voices feel welcome. And then people leave. They leave because they feel tokenized. They leave because they know you, they're wanted in look alone. And so that's why it's been really cool to have that be here because together, this is the thing that retains staff. It supports growth. It's what builds your bottom line. It's what makes employees happy when they feel welcomed. They feel belonged. And and that's a big, big, huge thing. I mean, that last one is equity. And I think equity, you know, some people still think equity is mortgages. I'm okay if that's what you think, but I am here to provide a little bit more clarification. So equity is not about a mortgage, right? It's not about your stake in something. And it's not Robin Hood politics. We're not robbing or taking from a group to give to another. What equity says is that inequity is a design. It's baked into systems and it's baked into beliefs. And if you are not intentional about naming some of our ideological beliefs, and asking questions about how our policies and practices are marginalizing people, we will never get to the point where everyone can achieve what is necessary. Folks, equity is not equality. Equality assumes that if you give everyone the same thing, people can prosper and be successful with the same resources. And, you know, systems of oppression teach us 
Meritocracy is a myth. You cannot pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Some people don't have boots, some people don't have straps, and some people don't have feet. And equity says when you change policies and you remove these these invisible ceilings, and some of them are not invisible, some of them are very much visible on certain populations, it is only then that people have the ability to truly get what they deserve. And so equity feels really uh, philosophical, right? It's the greater good, but just know you're doing it well when you no longer know who's most likely to be recruited into your organization, who's most likely to leave, who's most likely to stay, who's most likely to be recruited from what network, equity removes all predictability. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Equity removes all predictability. I'm going to have to hashtag get that one out there. I like that. Um, I think it's so important to um, talk about, I'd say, a big part of your framework starts with reckoning. Um, And I think that word, at least this past summer, emerged as a word that people used to talk about um, the you know murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, the the you know everything was stopped because of the quarantine and pandemic, which meant people had enough time to focus on what was going on, and so there was a a reckoning of a collective reckoning. I'd say even you know global national reckoning of you know, how these events forced us to, you know, really pay attention, to look at ourselves, to look at certain things. Can you talk about how, you know, when you, you know, use this reckoning within your framework, how can you juxtapose that to kind of where we are as a, as a, as a population right now, from an anthropological standpoint, I'm like, I'm taking, I'm taking you there today. That's right. I love it. Not a lot of people like to access all my Durkheimness. Okay, shout out to my Durkheimians out there. If you know what that is, we are smiling. Um, but I think that's a great question, Garland. And I want to be thoughtful in how I respond because I do think that we're still in a moment where a lot of people are still confused about what's going on. Right? Last summer, I think, made a lot of people aware that we live in multiple United States. There are folks who have been advocates for justice their entire lives who were not surprised. At the same time, we had a whole section of this country that was completely shocked by what was being televised. But we knew that these things were happening, right? So I'll start here. A reckoning is not a bad thing and it's not a punishment. But a reckoning is necessary work to achieve the greater good. And reckonings do a couple of things, right? It's not necessarily biblical. The first one is, how willing are you to sit in the multiple truths of who you are? Most of us have been taught to look at ourselves and only see our good. We are many things. So the first part of a reckoning is being able to own that at the same time that we may be fighting against injustice, that we may be trying to end oppression is the same time that we are also complicit and agents of it and that no one's hands are clean. This isn't about blaming anybody for their race. It's about naming that oppression functions in silence and something that functions in silence will become complicit in everyone if not named. So the reckoning is about doing the most important first step, which is stepping away from a window 
than looking into a mirror. You see, people look out of windows, they externalize and they say, well, why aren't you doing the change? What about this, you know, this group on this group violence? Or what about your people? But when you step away from that mirror, excuse me, that window, when you look in the mirror, the reckoning for us is about your ability to say that I can be a good person who can also be micro and macro aggressive, that we are complex and there's nothing wrong with naming that you're biased. To be human is to be biased. But if you don't name those things, you will manifest them on people and hurt them even when you didn't mean to do it. So the reckoning is about, do you have the language first to even describe what you're seeing? It's building a common vocabulary. So for some of you who are like, yes, what's that? Um, common vocabulary might look like what we did here. What's diversity? What's belonging? What's inclusion? What's equity? What are the systems of oppression? What do they look like in person and on Zoom? How can I see them? And once you know the terms, it holds you accountable differently because you see yourself differently and it hurts but it's a good hurt because when you're that kind of reckoned hurt, you're inspired to change because now you know there's something to change and not because there's anything wrong with you, but aren't we always on a constant journey of becoming a different, better version of ourselves? It's that. Yeah. I feel like what I'm hearing you say is it's naming it. It's naming it and saying, this is what it is. So it can no longer live in the shadows and it can no longer be just the way we do things. Uh, when you name it and you can actually see it, it forces you to have to, I have to change this. I have to do something about this. I have to make a decision. Will you be complicit or will you push on the thing that you now see? And I think the goal, I want people to know this is multi-lifetime work, okay? You don't just arrive. Perfect is a construct, just like race. There is no such thing as perfect, right? So think of it as I am reckoning to see something new every day, even if I don't have the answer on how to solve it. Your ability to solve does not undermine, you know, what you see, if that makes sense. Yeah. Seeing is powerful and there may be answers to what you see three generations from now. And that reckoning is hard too, right? It's owning that there always have to be next ones. You see, many of us have been taught that we have to solve it. We have to be the generation to end the thing. You know, inequity is over 500 years old. It will not be dismantled in one lifetime. We have to relinquish being the heroes and saviors of this generation. There is a lot that we can do and there will always be next ones, yes. right? And that realization takes some of the pressure off of you to feel like you have to see it all, name it all and solve it all. If you saw one thing, if you named one thing, and if you had a strategy for one thing, you have lived a great equitable life. Okay. That one thing that. is enough. Just be an integrity to come back to it every day. That's all. That's one thing. it. One okay. thing. So a big part of this work is also narratives. Um, I think I, I connected deeply with this because one, 
the whole, I think, reason I love doing this podcast is hearing people's stories, hearing people's origin stories, their career journeys. What is it that got you here? How are you showing up in the room with these influences and these lenses that you are, you know, our lived experiences that you, this is your unique stamp or your fingerprint, right? Um, and so good, bad, and different, all the things that, you know, make up your story, um, you show up into the room. And so when you talk about narratives as a part of this process of discovery, um, how are you leveraging narratives to kind of bring people together and build bridges and make it, make it more empathetic? Yeah, I think the first thing for us is, is when you realize most people don't learn about inequity from a book. They learn about it by hearing someone's lived experience that shocks them so much to the core that it urges them to make a different kind of change. Right. So we knew the power of storytelling is that's where most people's wisdom is. It's talking about what they've seen and what they've experienced. So there are a couple of different ways that we access story. The first one is you never want to enter this work after you've reckoned and not have a purpose or a why. So the first storytelling we do is like, why is dismantling inequity so important to you? You notice the question is broad enough. Not everyone is able to access that through the lens of race, but people can access that through gender, through sexuality, through class, right? Access to food, wherever it may be. You should have a why or a story about why you care about dismantling inequity. The second point hurts a little bit more, which is whys come from someplace. You have to be able to explain to people why you really care. And I can say this as a black woman, most people don't investigate or interrogate my why. They assume I am doing this work because of my identity. For many white folks out here, the ask on why are you doing this? Why do you care? How do I know that I'm just not a part of, you know, sort of your feel good story is really different. And like folks really want to hear it. So the second thing that we do is helping people access the moment or moments when their why became a why over a lifetime so that when folks leave our sessions, they not only have a succinct sentence, there is a full five minute story that helps make that sentence come to life for people to understand why you're invested. And then the third type of storytelling we do is the wisdom that we ask people to share about their lived experiences. If you can't talk about how the world has shown up on you, it becomes very hard to engage people who want to talk to you about how the world has shown up on them. So it's getting people comfortable talking about moments when you've seen inequity, moments when it's happened to you, um, things that you wished people knew about your identity that would have helped you feel a different sense of belonging. So those three things are interwoven throughout all of our experiences, and it makes the space feel a lot more intimate. It feels a lot more empathetic because what you don't have people doing is saying, well, in this book, this book says you're wrong. No, everybody's life story is true. You cannot refute those multiple truths. And it's the sitting in that that I think is what brings people together. It makes the experience more transformational and it becomes a human experience again versus a I'm right, you're wrong. 
Yeah, I like that. Um, it it gets us back to our connection as as human beings, having experiences on this planet in whatever capacities those are, so that we are then able to move past the divisions and look at, oh wow, this happened to you, right? And it's not about whether it was right or like we're not getting like this happened to you, period. And sitting in the truth of that, I mean, one story, if we have time, Garland, that I often tell, I won't tell the whole thing, is when we talk about that concept, for example, of white privilege. And I want to be thoughtful because white privilege is a term that gets weaponized by a lot of people. But I'll tell you, folks, here's what it is. White privilege just assumes that many white people have not ever had a difficult conversation about race or have had to think about race um, and that that is a privilege. That's all it is. And the way that I make that example come to life is I tell this simple story about going on vacation. And I say, if you are someone who identifies as white, I want you to think about what's the first thing you normally think if you have the privilege to go on vacation. You figure out where you want to go. You figure out what you're going to wear. If you're like me, there's a Pinterest vision board, right? With every outfit. But do you Google, has anyone ever been lynched here? Two years ago, my husband and I were driving cross country and we got run out of a town at sundown by the Ku Klux Klan in Colorado in 2018. If you never had to be worried about getting off an interstate because Waze told you there was a gas station there, if you've never worried about being run out of a town at sundown, I don't want you to feel guilty. I need you to know that is why you have privilege. I think about race all the time, though I don't want to, because if I don't, I could be killed. Have you ever worried about being killed on vacation? Every time I go, every time I go on vacation, I I look up what the population uh, experience has been to be a black person. Am I going to feel comfortable there? Um, I mean, the right. I watch the stuff. YouTube videos because they, yes. and this folks for the folks listening, right? This is an example of how I'm not upset that this is not your story, but in hearing me tell that story, we have built so much empathy right here. And then to have it reinforced by Garland, this is not an anomaly. This is why white privilege exists, right? And it's not your yeah. fault, but these are the no. stories that have yeah. to be told to help you realize why it's dangerous. It's yeah. not an attack. Oh, I'm just telling goodness, you we don't have that privilege. And you uh, do, and it's not your fault. But the reason white privilege is dangerous is because white community that doesn't know about those dynamics invisibilizes them. Yeah. How can you truly make me feel belonged if you don't know that the minute I walked into this office, I didn't even feel welcome? That I spent 10 hours being awake wondering how I should wear my hair? That I'm from Brooklyn, right? Can I be uncode switched here? Have you ever thought about that? That's all privilege is. Something you don't think about. But it's hard to tell people they have privilege when you can't give them a story about your own life. That's why it's powerful to start with story. Because it's humanizing. And it's not blaming. Yeah. It's not shaming. It's just, this is my life. I wish it wasn't like years. this. Yeah. And that's that's the kind of energy, you know, I think that unfortunately we have seen the grace 
leave a lot of the work. And the grace is not coddling. It's just realizing that oppression oppresses everyone and that most people don't know what they don't know. They've never been proximate to difference. They don't know how you've lived. And most people are biased and don't know they're biased because they've been watching TV and then they say something and didn't know it was hurtful. This is what oppression looks like. So the storytelling is the thing that allows people to actually understand what's happening without them feeling so guilty that they're paralyzed to be advocates and accomplices and change. Yeah. So the inner work, this is, this mm-hmm. is the hard mm-hmm. part, as I say. Uh, this is the part that is the most challenging. This is the part where it, the discomfort gets very real. And you either run for the hills and say it's, it's, it's too much, it's too much, or you dig deep into the darkness and do the work mm-hmm. every day. Um, so I'm curious what you have seen doing these, you know, deep dives with people. Um, how, how do you know when you have like hit a place where they're going to go there? Yeah. When you are like, you're right there, like, just keep going. Like, how do you encourage people to keep going? Well, I think the encouragement is it's helpful when it's supported by an organization. You know, Garland, people actually have to have time to go inward. And a part of our culture is that we have made self-reflection selfish. And we have blamed people for reflecting and needing time to process and to think about themselves. And it prevents a lot of people from doing that because they don't think it's valuable. So I think the first one is when an employer or an organization actually authorizes people doing self-reflection, it goes a long way. People are afraid to spend work time thinking about themselves. But if that's already been carved out, and they know that it's going to build on their goals and build on their team culture, it is an easier transition. The second one is people will do nothing that they have not seen modeled. People go inward when our facilitators go inward. So that reflection, for example, about the clan is not even so much an inward reflection. It's a story. Inner work would look like me saying, I don't know how hard it is to tell you that I felt like that was my fault. I should have known better about getting off a highway. And I could have prevented that. And I'm realizing that's my own internalized oppression. That I think I'm supposed to be an agent of my own saving. And that I blame myself for situations that I think I should have thought about. As opposed to just naming... Like, it's okay to believe that you could be safe everywhere. That that's my internalized oppression. And like naming it and sitting in it. And then you say things like, which are true. I don't know what to do about that. But I want to talk about that because I'm bothered by that. And I'm wondering what it means for me to have that kind of internalized oppression when I'm asking other people, to engage in things 
that might trigger that kind of internalized oppression, right? Like, so if people don't know what that looks like, they don't do it. And you can't assume that it can happen in a big group. So even in the world of Zoom, this is a perfect moment for a breakout. That's a pair. So we use protocols, um, like listening protocols, where you might have a person talk for five minutes, another person talks for five minutes, and then you spend five minutes together talking about what you heard each other say. Most people will really say anything if they feel safe enough to say it. I don't think there's such a thing as safe space, though. Somebody always feels unsafe in safe space. But there is a way to create relational trust that makes people feel like they won't be blamed or violated or belittled or laughed at for putting their innermost parts in front of you. And you can do that by creating care through facilitation. You model sharing, you narrate, you storytell, and then you step back and you let people sit in it. And you do the thing that, you know, Garland, it's, it's almost hard to say adults are nothing more than children grown up, right? We want to be loved. We want to be affirmed. And we want to know that we still get to be a different version of ourselves when we grow up. And when you affirm an adult and you tell them it's going to be okay, even if you don't know how, it creates a really um, powerful bubble of care that allows people to share. And I know like for some of you listening, you're like, when and how would I do that? You can do that. You can do that in facilitation. You can do it in team meetings. It just has to be prioritized. But people will never go inward if they don't have the time. And they'll never go inward if you don't model for them how to get there. That is so true. Uh, And it is vulnerability, like to no end, which... I think certain organizations are not, I mean, we, we just, let's get it done. Let's, we just need to wrap it up. Like, you know, the, the idea of saying, let's sit in this, this is going to be uncomfortable. We'll be sharing. I mean, that's, that's very um, new yeah. in a lot of places. And the harder yeah. part, the sentence you have to say, no, the goal is sharing. Like there isn't an expectation for us to do anything that the work is actually talking. And that reframe that conversations can actually be strategically intentional, the thought that you can talk but not necessarily have to have an end goal, the non-closure is completely new but absolutely necessary. You can't expect people to unpack themselves, to think about their whole lives, to make a decision on their purpose, to define the one thing they want to be in integrity with, and then wrap that all up in a tight 48 minute moment. That's just, that's a, that's a 48 year moment. You can't do it in 48 minutes. And I think we sometimes rush in our urgency to an end goal. um, And we never get there because urgency and absence of competency is harm. And urgent people with no skills to be urgent hurt people. And they never come back to this work. So folks who are listening, I want your urgency to be competency. And the first competency is being able to speak in absence of certainty and closure. You got to listen to these stories for the rest of your life. That's right. And that's the work. 
That is the word. And it's not going to be about, you know, a diversity scorecard. Those conversations don't always lead to the kind of retention or recruitment that you want. But what those conversations do is they change your culture. They transform your culture. They build empathy and they allow people to see each other in ways that they've never seen before. This is what DEI is. It's not about racial replacement. It's about we should have the right to be with each other. Yes. And being doesn't have closure. Being does not have closure. That's another one. Being Okay, Garland, you got two quotables. Oh yeah, no. I'm I'm I need this to write that it. down. That was a new one. I like that That's one. That's a good one. You need to put that on the put that on the top. Okay, being does not have closure. I love that. So we're going to talk next about critical race theories because I used to do, you know, sociology, African American studies. I when I saw this, I was like, all my all my hair stood up. <laughs> I said, she's bringing critical race theory to to the work. That's right. <laughs> And, you know, it's really a couple of key concepts in CRT for us. So CRT is the the acronym that we often use for critical race theory. Now, critical race theory was created back in the 70s, really, to help us understand, like, what were the some of the key tenants that really needed to be addressed and to be named? So, like, we're, I'm not going to name all of them. There's, there's a big part of it. But it's all about understanding that we have to look at society and culture broadly. That you want to be thinking about not just people and changing people, but it's focusing on changing systems and categories and laws. You see, the danger is we often blame people for things that systems manifest. So here's a really great example. Something systemic is many of us are taught that certain people are safe and others are not. Um, We can think about what we often see on TV. Most villains are either um, Black or of Muslim descent now since September 11th, right? It's unfortunate realities, but this is what we often see. And then that's the ideology that we're taught. And then that ideology gets codified into laws like racial profiling, our discipline policies, like who we think is most likely to be successful in a workplace. And critical race theory says, if you don't address that, we'll spend all this time like wondering why certain things are manifesting in our system. We got to call it out. So for us, critical race theory is really um, thinking about a couple of big terms, which is systemic oppression. And systemic oppression is what you just heard be named. It's beliefs, And then it's laws and policies and institutions at places of power. And then you have the more non-systemic pieces like internal, which is what you individually believe, and then interpersonal, which is people to people. So we want people to be able to see this work in four different ways. Belief, laws and practice, what you've internalized yourself, and then the way those things show up in people to people. Um, we also use it to really help people be able to have knowledge um, to think about themselves in new ways. So things like intersectionality. We are more than one thing at the same time. 
Critical race theory also brings in counter storytelling and storytelling and narratives to help people understand how the world shows up on different people. And so I find that inner work, critical race theory and reckoning speak incredibly well to each other. Critical race theory, though, is sort of that next level, which is now that you see it, what are you called to do that you, now that you can see it? So reckoning, if you think about the pace of the framework, reckoning says you cannot engage in systemic change until you realize you are a system first. And there are many pieces of you. And we have to reckon with that. And then narrative says you've seen things, though, your entire life that are going to help you understand more about what you believe and how you believe it and how you see the world. But we know you might not have had access to the whole world. Here are other stories to inform you. And that informing shakes people to the core, which is what pushes them inward. Because we've got to understand, like, what are my roots? What am I complicit in? And then critical race theory says, now that you've owned all those pieces of you, You've got a why, you've got a purpose, and you have a vision for yourself. What can we do systemically? And that's where CRT comes in. Because we now know you can see the whole system. And then we why again. What are you committed to doing systemically now? What are you committed to interrupting? So just wanted to take folks through the trajectory and how they build on each other, but that's where CRT fits for us. Wow. This is so good. I feel like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, I'm let's glad. do this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why, you know, for those of you listening, like how long does this take? You know, the average organization has partnered with us for at least three years. We, you can't do a one and done in this kind of work. I'm not, this is not a jab to my folks out here doing great, you know, one-time work. Like maybe you were called in to do a difficult conversation or to provide foundational vocabulary. Your roles are incredibly important. And an organization that wants to really reach this change at the individual level and at the org level has to commit multiple years. You cannot reckon and narrative and inner work and make a goal for systemic change in the same quarter or the same year, it takes on average eight to 10 years to get to equity from diversity. Eight to and 10. That's, and that's just to, to get to a place where you recognize and you start to change, but that's still continuation of how are we now adopting this like going forward? Always, that's right. Like making sure that we're keeping um, this top of mind and central in our, in our business. So mm -hmm. it's not like, oh, eight to 10 and you can wrap that up. Right. Mm -hmm. The closure isn't closed even then, but it, it means you're far enough, way far enough along further than you were when you started. That's right. And that's a hard, like going back to that piece around closure, that to me is where leaders of organizations are going to have to have their own reckoning about how much you expect your organization to manifest in a quarter or a year. You know what you can do well in a year? You can provide people with foundational vocabulary and people can tell powerful stories to each other. You can ask questions about what, that, what those stories mean for your culture. That's it. That's it. And in year two, 
We're now taking those recommendations that we heard from storytelling and we're asking what would this mean for the institutions in our organization and our laws and our policies and our processes. That's that's a year, depending on how big your org is. Yeah. An organization less than 50 could maybe do multiple things in a year. But if you've got anywhere from 100 plus, you still have to do your regular work function. Think of it as I have to do one big thing a year. Not all of them. So yeah, so that that um, that framework looks really great. I'm just naming. It's a long term one. It is a long. It's a long process. I mean, just I feel like getting to narratives and then getting to inner work like that in itself feels like that. Like that's a year each. That's like, right. Just takes a while to even get to that part. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I understand <laughs> that this is not a 12 month, 12 step situation. That's so right. yeah. Uh, so what is next for your team? What are the things that you're working on any upcoming, you know, cause I know, you know, you're going to, I think start at least what I saw on the website, you're even looking at starting to, you know, certify people. That's um, right. In this space. So we've got a couple of different things coming through the pipeline. I don't want to give them all away uh, no. so that we can still have our own social media releases. But we do have a train the trainer program. We've had it for a few years now, but we've revamped it. Right. So we've got a taxonomy now for our trainers. We've seen a lot over these last five years about what does the change actually take? So we're excited to get that back up and going this year. Um we also will be driving uh, and piloting our online course. So we do have an online course that we use internally with clients, but this year I believe we're going to be releasing it um, so that folks who might not have a chance to do our work through an organization could still go through that same framework and processes as individuals. So be videos, self-learning. So our goal is to continue to be the Pied Pipers of the work, um, to bring people knowledge and care and grace to have hard conversations um, without people feeling drug out, exhausted, or harmed. Um, so those are some of the big things, at least, that I can name. Um, and stay tuned for the rest on our various media sites. Okay, I will. Um, so I conclude each of my shows with a few things. Um, one is inclusion and equity drive my work. Inclusion and equity drive my work towards finally achieving a greater good, a greater good that we've never had, but it's well-deserved. And then what does life look like coming full circle to you? Full circle to me would be having everyone in this country actually be able to qualify and understand the things that I saw when I was a child and reimagining grace on communities that they never got to have. It's the redemption conversation. Cause I feel like people from my neighborhood are still seen in negative ways for something that they had no systemic control over. So coming full circle is we are knowledgeable enough. We've gone inward enough. We've had difficult conversations enough. We've reckoned enough to be in empathy and care of all community. Ooh, that is good. Thank that you. That is good. That was um, a great. That was a great question, Garland. No one's ever asked me, but a, clearly, 
it was right on the tip of my tongue because that's what I think I think about the most, but don't get to talk about that often. Yeah. Is this you is know, this to me is also a, a journey for redemption. Yeah, I'm a child of the 80s too. And I remember I I grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah, and it was so you gang, know. You it know. was gangs over here. That was the thing. Um, and I remember looking as an adult now back at what what gang culture really was from a societal standpoint, not from a, you know, yes, there was a drug dealing component, but in terms of a family structure, why gangs became so prominent was because of a lot of broken family structures that came out of certain systemic things. That's right. Um, and also because there's a large immigrant community here in California, people were sending their children here without their parents. Yeah. And so when you don't have that family structure in place and you have to create and find family for yourself, particularly in those, um, those years when you are needing that the most, um, it just, it, it makes you look at the whole thing differently. Um, and I, I'm right there with you. Yeah. If, it's if just you when can, you know, you know, and you can see it differently. It's like, and it's not to undermine the things that may have happened on the other side of gangs. It's not to belittle the 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 violence and, and the deaths and the senselessness. And it's a whole different conversation when you bring up the points that you've named, Garland. I think about it as a truth and reconciliation, right? You don't ever truly forgive, but you can sit in the multiple truths and reckon with them, even if they don't make sense to you. Yeah. That would be an amazing full circle because I don't know if we've ever had that kind of empathy as a country, as a world. Um, and it changes how you enter into policy change. It changes how you think about supporting groups because you don't come in with a deficit mindset, assuming people need to be saved. You come in with opportunity because you realize the reason that most people are in the conditions they're in is because they never had access. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> okay. We're about to be here all day, folks. Stay we tuned sure for part three. Yes, I know. Thank you so much. Thank for you, your Garland. Time, for your uh, wisdom. Uh, your, I, I sense this caring. And I think exactly what you said, the grace and the caring and the vulnerability is the work. And I think we get so focused on the, you know, process and the, you know, you need to do this and the scorecard and that, and there is a place for that. Mm -hmm. However, when we connect with each other in a more human way, it makes the work transformational. It makes it purposeful. It makes it to me more sustainable um, because you know your reason for why you're showing up every day to do the work. That's right. Um, so I'm going to put all of your contact information in the show notes. Um, deep is really what it's about. I think I'm doing this show today because people are always asking me, what can I be doing? How can I be helping? What is it that I need to be focused on? And so having you on today is one of the answers to what you can be doing, how you can be helping, what you should be focused on. So I appreciate having you on today. And I appreciate being here. Thank you for the time. And thank you all for listening. I hope it was helpful, impactful, and transformational. Thank you.
there was just so much today. I think this was one of those episodes where I myself felt like I was learning as she was talking. So what I love about having guests on like her is that they really force you to even um, be better, just not feel like you have gotten all the answers or that you figured it out. I feel like there was so much that she shared on this episode that I just have to repeat it. At this point, I have nothing to add. I feel like she really just went there and took us took us to church, honestly. There was so much good stuff that she shared. So um, the ones that stood out for me, equity removes all predictability. Some people don't have boots. Some people don't have straps. Some people don't have feet. Uh, when we talk about equity, I think, like she said, it's not equality. And so we can't predict what people will need. We can't predict what uh, we think others want. And so when we look at equity, it's removing what we think we know, what we think we can predict about someone, and really just asking them what they need. Uh, another thing that she said is, we don't have to solve it. We can relinquish being the saviors. I think as someone who does DEI work, you sometimes very much feel like you have to you know, take it on and have to do everything. And so what she's essentially asking you to do is just don't feel like you're going to fix it. If you can just focus on one thing, one thing that you want to see, that you want to bear, one thing that you want to make a difference, just focus on that one thing and don't worry about trying to do everything. Another thing that she said was, um, story is humanizing and grace is not coddling. So I think when we hear about narratives and we hear people's stories, uh, believe their stories. It's not your story. It may not be true for you, but it is true for that person and it is their reality. Uh, I think this past summer, seeing that video with George Floyd, a lot of people were surprised that that is a relationship that people of color have with the police. That may not have been everyone's experience with police, but that is a reality for a lot of people. And so when you hear and see stories that aren't true for you, that doesn't take away the fact that it is true for someone else. And by doing that, we not only validate each other, but we see the humanity. We see the multiple uh, stories that are happening at the same time. And so I feel like there was so much she said about how narratives and stories are important for us to even recognize each other and the differences in our experiences. Uh, grace is not coddling, I think is huge because grace is, when I think about grace, it really is just giving people an opportunity to understand that it is not anyone's fault. It is not placing blame. It is just saying, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I'm so sorry that this has been your experience. It's holding someone and saying, I, I'm, so, I'm so aware of your experience. Um, and just, again, sitting in it, not feeling like you have to have an answer. Uh, another thing that she said urgency and absence of competencies is harm, uh, which basically means in our effort to try to fix this and we need to hurry up and put a bow on this and we just have to do this as quickly as possible. 
we're harming ourselves because we are trying to do work that takes way longer to do and trying to wrap it up and make it easy and check a box. And so don't feel as though you have to get everything right and perfect and solved. Um, I think she just hit that over and over uh, and was a good reminder of just not feeling like you have to, you know, wrap everything up because it's not. Um, and the goal is sharing. The work is talking about it and being does not have closure. Uh, you're going to hear a lot about being and beingness, I'd say, in the next few episodes with a variety of guests. And I really want you to understand what a state of being is. It really has no end. It's just you showing up and existing. And it's not anything that you can actually um, force. There's nothing you can make it be. It just is. And by it just existing, you accept it and understand that there's no closure in that. And it's going to take as long as it's going to take. Um, and I think that is a different paradigm for so many of us because we are so used to everything having a compartment, a box, a place. It's really about making everything just go away. And when things are uncomfortable, we don't like sitting in them. We don't like being in them. And so the idea of just letting something be and it not being beautiful, it not being comfortable, it being awkward is new. It's a new feeling. And I think leaning into it and not feeling like you have to do anything is going to be something we should all work on this, just work on it. Um, and it's hard, but it's, it's not for us to solve. Again, it's not, it's not anyone's one thing to solve. So there was just so many things that came out of this interview today. I felt like we have so much work to do, but I think what she's trying to encourage us to do is not feel like we have to get it all done today, get it done now, get it done within the year. Just it's a consistent applied effort of reckoning within yourself to do what you can daily. And as a daily practice, whatever that daily practice is for you to find within yourself, what can I do every day? What am I able to do every day? And I think when you approach it from that standpoint, it is really about a journey, a long-term commitment than it is trying to be, you know, be Superman or Superwoman and fix this and make it better because I don't think that's the goal. The goal is to really just show up for each other every day in the ways that we need to in order for us to make life work for everybody. So um, this was my kind of takeaway from this, this, uh, this interview. And I just encourage you to continue to dig deep, even when it's difficult, um, and continue to show up even when it's difficult. So Thank you so much for listening. Um, and we've got more amazing interviews like this coming up so that you can continue to grow yourself and um, feel like you have agency in this process. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, 
go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.